in that song, there's a line that says that, will you pray with all your power as the word is preached? Is that what some of you are doing whenever the word is preached? When your eyes are closed? Just wondering. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great song. I've only sung it a few times, and it was here at Brentwood Oaks, but there's something powerful about that song in calling on God to act in that moment when the sermon is preached, when the Word of God is opened, there is a moment that really belongs to God whenever the Word of God is opened. It's when God does the heart surgery that only God can do. It's when God opens our ears to His voice in ways that only God can do. And so that's what we pray for as the Word of God is opened, that God would act, doing the things in the invisible, in the, in the depths of our hearts that we cannot possibly see, but it's part of God forming and shaping us. And I think we really get that, especially when we look at the book of James, the letter of James. James is a mirror. We heard that image that Roland read earlier from James chapter 1. We hear that every 10 weeks, that for the person who hears the Word but doesn't do what it says, is like a man who looks in the mirror and as they walk away, they immediately forget what they look like. And, and James is introducing a theme to us here that runs throughout the letter, but it's something that's really picked up in all of Scripture, this idea of hearing and, and doing, of trusting and obeying. And he brings it together in what's called faith and works. And we come to a very powerful passage this morning from the book of James. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. So let those who have the ears to hear, let them hear. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, I remember it too well. It's an image that pops into my head every time this particular scripture is read. It happened to me about 10 or 11 years ago. It was a very cold day in Austin. One of the few bitterly cold days that we have in January or February. It happens every once in a while, and it was one of those days. It was very cold. The wind was blowing. And I was out and about running some errands, and I dropped by HEB, picked up a few groceries on the way home, and as I walked outside, something caught my attention that was really out of the ordinary. It was strange. There was a young Hispanic woman standing on the side of the curb, right outside the HEB, and she was holding a baby. That was not strange. What was strange was what she was wearing. She was hardly wearing anything at all. It was something that you would see in mid-July, certainly not on a day when it was 30 degrees with the wind blowing, and I was cold and I was bundled up. So immediately I did what probably a lot of us do. You start assessing the situation and maybe even making some judgment calls. The first thought, sadly, from my mind was, what foolishness is this? How foolish for someone to dress like that on a day like today, and how foolish it is to hold a baby out in 30-degree weather, how dangerous it is. But then a second thought came to my mind. I thought, well, this is really out of the ordinary. I wonder if she's doing this voluntarily or if she was being asked to wait outside by someone or maybe being compelled or ordered by someone And looking back on it, I think she was probably in a pretty dire situation, no matter what that situation may have been. But it didn't matter, because as I saw that situation, I I walked over to this young woman, didn't speak any English, and to her baby, and I nodded and smiled at the baby, and I took my coat off and put it around her and said, God bless you, and made that long cold walk back to the car at least that's the way I wish it would have happened Hmm. it didn't happen that way as I walked outside HEB I saw this young woman and at the same time another woman was walking in and I saw that she saw that young woman she saw that I saw that young woman we both acknowledged that this strange scene was before us and we both shared this moment of Well, it was disgust, and we shook our heads, and we made our way off to where we were going. I didn't even bother with saying, be warmed and filled. I just went ahead and skipped that part. And I didn't come to my senses until a few miles down the road. And I thought, what are you doing? And I turned around, and it took maybe 10 minutes to get back there. And of course, by that time, she she was gone When I look in the mirror of James chapter 2, can't help it, that image pops in my head. It's there. I can imagine on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus saying, Charlie, I gave you a softball right down the middle, and you didn't even swing. 
Now, I don't, I don't stay up at night thinking about this and revisiting it. As I drove away from HEB, I confessed, Lord, have mercy on me for passing that up, that opportunity up. Maybe some of you are saying, well, that wasn't, you know, maybe she was just waiting for a minute or two. No, it was, it was, she was out there for a long time. It was a strange, strange situation. But that is the image that pops in my mind whenever I hear those words from James chapter 2. When he says, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Well, this morning as we look in the mirror that is James chapter 2, we have the opportunity to think about the authentic life of the believer, the Christian, and to think about the relationship with what Paul says, or what he calls faith, and works. How much of what we confess matches up with what we actually do in the flesh? Now there were some things going on in those churches to whom James was writing that really warranted him spending some time with this relationship between faith and works. Earlier in chapter 2 he talks about a very specific situation. He talks about the sin of partiality, how some in the churches there were giving preference to the rich, the wealthy. They were giving them the best seats in the house and neglecting the poor. And James says that is not becoming of a believer. That's not who we are. That's not our calling. In fact, that is hypocrisy. He calls out the hypocrisy that we can so easily get entangled with. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so there's this call for authenticity, and that continues in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, as James addresses the tension between faith and works. And I would say that's not even the tension he's addressing here, and we'll talk more about that a little later. Apparently there are some in those churches who are are carrying around in them this watered-down version of the word faith. The word in the Greek is pistis. It has a a wide range of meaning. It includes, no doubt, this idea of of mental assessment to some propositions for sure. But beyond that, also trust. And beyond that, fidelity, loyalty. And beyond that, faithfulness, obedience, that's all wrapped up in that word, pistis. So James says it in verse 19. He says, You believe that God is one, the Shema that we hear every ten weeks from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You believe the Shema. Good for you, he says. Even the demons believe that. But that's not faith. That is a sliver of faith. That maybe is where faith begins, but if that's where it ends if there's no obedience attached to it, if the other elements of the word pistis are not there, loyalty, fidelity, faithfulness, then James says your faith is empty, it is useless, it is dead. Be warmed and filled with no action has no place in the kingdom of God, according to James. Which is why I'm often surprised at the allergic reaction that I hear from some 
in the modern church, perhaps many in the modern church, the allergic reaction to words like works and obedience. And to talk about obedience and good deeds as it relates to salvation is tantamount to a false gospel, according to some. I think this comes from a misreading of Paul and Romans and Galatians, and I think even a misunderstanding of the gospel and what the good news is all about. And let's just take these one at a time. So when Paul talks about faith as it relates to works in Romans and Galatians, when he says we're justified by faith and not by works, he has something very specific he's talking about there. There's a very specific question that he is addressing. As we think back to our study of Romans in the fall, when he talks about the tension between Jews and Gentiles. So for centuries, the Israelites, the Jews, were the covenant people of God. And the Gentiles were out. But now with, in Christ, there's this new family that includes the whole world. The invitation is to the whole world. And for centuries, for Jews, they would ask this question, what are the markers? What are the markers that demonstrate that someone is part of the covenant people of God? The question in Romans and Galatians is, who's in the family? And how do you get in the family? And for centuries, for Jews, it was the works of the Torah, the works of the law, specifically circumcision, and things of that nature, the dietary laws. Those are the things that set the Jews apart from the rest of the world. And God's rescue mission was going right through Israel. And all of a sudden, the Gentiles are part of the family. And, and so for the Gentiles to become part of the family of God, according to some Jews... They must first obey the works of Torah. They must be circumcised. They must follow the law in order to become part of the family. And Paul's point in Romans and Galatians is, no! There is a new reality that has come with the Messiah. A new creation. A new covenant. A new people. The markers are no longer the works of the Torah. The marker is pistis. It's faith. Faith is what marks you as a child of God. What Paul is not addressing in these letters when he talks about works are the acts of love toward neighbor, the self-emptying love that are not optional. In fact, we're held accountable for those. Even in Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Paul talks about Judgment Day. He says, He will render, God will render to each one according to his works. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. And Paul spends so much time on the transformation of the person, putting off the vices, putting on the virtues. And this lines up with the Gospels. We're going to read the Gospel of Matthew beginning in December. And it's hard to walk away from Matthew without walking away thinking that obedience is connected to salvation when you read the Gospels themselves. We hear it in the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who calls unto me, Lord, Lord, will be saved, but only he who does the will 
of my Father. The great judgment scene in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, says this, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was on the curbside at HEB, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, and naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then following that is the parable of the goats, the negative version of that, people who didn't do those things for the least of these The point is, obedience, good deeds, are not an afterthought. They're not optional in the kingdom of God, and in fact, they mark and serve as markers of true faith. And I imagine that the source of the allergic reaction that many have to works and obedience comes from from the fear of setting up a a type of works righteousness, as if we could mount up a certain number of good works and and God will look on that and say, oh yeah, you've done enough, come on in. And that's that's not the, the ordering that we find in Scripture. And I really think it goes against a fundamental understanding of what the good news is all about. So if the center of the good news is Jesus dying on the cross so that one day we have some future home in heaven, if that is the center of the gospel, then good works would be less important. But that's not the gospel that's proclaimed in Acts. When you read the proclamation of Peter and Paul there in the book of Acts, what we find is the good news as related to the kingdom of God is the proclamation of the kingdom of God has come. The Messiah, the Lordship, the kingship of Jesus has arrived, and with that there's a new creation And so much of the gospel proclamation in Acts has to do with the present reality, even more so than the future reality. That's a part of it. But it has to do with new creation in the here and now, a gospel of transformation, the forgiveness of sins that has come to us now, the powers, the authorities, the rulers, the the principalities that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 have been taken captive by Jesus at the cross and His very Spirit indwells the church and animates us and creates us for doing the good works which He has prepared in advance for us to do. It is a gospel of reconciliation with God. It's a gospel of transformation. And it's all God's grace. All of it, from right standing with God to the good works that we do by the power of the Spirit within us, it's by nothing that originates from us. It is the power of God. It's the gospel that takes root within us, and it's played out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works His will through us, in us, for His good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. 
It's here where the words of Jesus and the words of Paul contextually understood and the words of James really come together as one. What they're doing is they're defining pistis, the full meaning of that word faith. I like what one author says about James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. He says, The contrast here is not so much between faith and deeds, but it is between dead faith, useless faith, and living faith. Between false faith and true faith. James 2 is a battle for language. It's a battle for proper definition of terms, recapturing the meaning of pistis, or as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, when he says that the gospel is about the bringing the Gentiles to obedient faith. He uses those two terms together, obedient faith. That is what faith is all about. Well, I want to leave us with this thought. It's not, ne- not necessarily something to adopt, per se, but it's something to ponder, to wrestle with and think about. I mentioned this last year, earlier this year. There's a book on my shelf that I was intrigued with, intrigued with the title, and I actually read through it recently, most of it. And the title of the book is this. So play with this a little bit. Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Salvation by allegiance alone. And what this author does in this book, the entire book, is dedicated to reframing and recapturing the word pistis as properly understood in the New Testament. The author suggests, and I tend to agree with him, that the word allegiance really helps resolve that tension between faith and works. It carries the mental trust when we pledge allegiance to something, think about the things that we have our allegiance to, uh, even our, our sports teams or whatever. It affects not only our mental capacities, it affects our actions, our deeds. Faith works. Allegiance. Now, allegiance doesn't fit every single reference to faith. There is the mental part of and trust of faith that we find in Scripture, but the vast majority of references, allegiance is there. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, read through that. By faith, Abraham obeyed. It's action. Action oriented. Well, the reason why I bring this up in this word, allegiance, is because I, there may be some here this morning who, who come to this place and we're looking in the mirror and we see a disconnect between what we confess and what we do. We see a disconnect between faith and works in our own lives. And we could try to fix that ourselves through our own discipline we could try to manufacture something. We, should, we could try to uh, come up with a list of good deeds we can do tomorrow. That might not be a bad thing to keep it on our radar, but if that's our motivation, that is works righteousness if we fall into that trap. But if we find ourselves this morning with this big, giant gap between our faith and our deeds, 
I would invite us to go to the very heart of the matter and to ask the hard question. You've heard it said, you are what you love, you are what you worship, you are that which you hold your allegiance to. That's the question. What is your allegiance? Where is my allegiance right now? Who am I bowing the knee to? Because the truth is, when we recalibrate our allegiance, our actions, our deeds flow from that. Naturally, supernaturally, by the work of the Spirit. So when we do run across the woman at HEB who's holding a baby in 30 degree weather, we give her our coat, not because we're trying to keep tabs on good works and hoping at the end of all things that our good works outweigh the bad works. Because of our allegiance to the Lord, the one who, as Roger said, knelt down and washed his disciples' feet and said, do the same unto others for one another. We have an invitation this morning, and built into this invitation is a time of confession because the truth of the matter is our allegiance is tested every day. There are times when our faith does not match up to our deeds. There are times when our spirits are oh so willing, but our flesh is weak. And we have the opportunity this morning to look in the mirror and to confess to our Lord because God knows and we know what that reflection looks like, what images come to our mind when we look into the mirror. So I want to invite us to stand, if you would. Go ahead and stand. We're going to read together a psalm of confession. And then I'll lead us in a prayer that will take us to our invitation. Let's read together. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In this prayer, there will be a time of silence for us to lift up our sins, to confess them to the Lord, and in so doing, praying for God's healing and God's transformation. Let's pray. Our Father, now in the silence we come to you, confessing our sins to you. Lord, hear our prayer. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, through the power of your Spirit, that you would continue to transform our dead faith into a living faith, a faith that is marked by trust and obedience as a witness to our Austin neighbors and to the world. Help us to see ourselves in the mirror. Help us to break through the self-deception 
the sloth, the vices that so easily entangle. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, your people. Forgive us our sins when our allegiance is drawn to other things in the world. May our faith and deeds be as one by the power of your grace and your spirit. May we bring honor to your name in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Together we say, Amen. We have the invitation this morning to respond to the good news. If you would like prayers from your church, now's the time to come forward. If you'd like to, to have prayers with one of the shepherds, uh, there will be time available in the chapel following our assembly. If you'd like to be baptized, if you have heard the story and you have come to a point of belief, then we could do this for you today. If you've been immersed and you'd like to join in with what this, God, what this church is doing, what God is doing through this church to become a member with us, we invite you to come now as we sing this song together.